You're listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes, where you'll hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. Raw, real, and 100% unapologetic. And now, here is your host, Eric Rogel. Hey, this is Eric Rogel, and thanks for joining me on Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes. And this is where each week you're going to hear real stories of the journey to modern manhood told by the men who lived them. This is about challenges they've overcome, things that they faced, and how they became the men they are today. Now, the first archetype in the title of the show is Warrior. And I get a lot of men who come and tell me that they don't believe that they're warriors, don't believe that they could be a warrior, become a warrior, because to them... The term means physical strength. That's what they're looking at. The ability, the desire to go into battle with other men, to take on physical challenges. And that's kind of sad. And it really pisses me off because this is the source of so much confusion and so much self-doubt in men today. So many men feel that if they don't display an outward or any of the outward physical attributes of a warrior that they won't ever be a real man. And I'm using big air quotes there on real man because men, I got to tell you, this could not be more wrong. So warriors show up in all different ways. I mean, we are all warriors inside. There's no one definition that defines you as a warrior. It's not about size. It's not about strength. It's not about what you do. There's so much more to it than that. So I'll give you an example. If I said to you, could a warrior ever be a self-described math geek? Would you agree to that? Well, most people wouldn't. I mean, even even one of the men in my roundtable disagreed with that. Uh, He actually questioned me about airing this episode just because of that. And again, it's because we're looking at the physical. But in this case, it's also about seeing a math geek as an intellectual instead of a warrior, right? We look at it as too in his head, too soft. But let me ask you this. What if that math geek sees that the math that he loves so much is being used to lie, to hide something terrible, and that the lives of men, and even in a lot of cases, the lives of children are endangered because of this. And what if, in order to bring this all to light and to help save the lives of those men and children, this math geek has to go up against one of the most powerful institutions in the world and fight them for more than three years, while the entire time, they and their army of lawyers and experts are working, doing everything they can to discredit him and discredit him very publicly. And what if after going head to head with them for all that time, this powerful institution and their entire army of lawyers and experts conceded? What if they finally told him he was right and began working on a way to fix the problem rather than hide it? And even though it destroyed a career that he loved and put a tremendous strain on his family, his battle ultimately ended up potentially saving the lives of a lot of people. Would you now say that this self-described math geek was truly a warrior? 
Now, to me, there's absolutely no doubt about that. And that's why I wanted you to hear my guest's story, because he did just that. He is a well-known baseball writer. He's the author of several books, and he's also the former host of ESPN's Baseball Today podcast. And he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize in journalism for a series of articles he wrote for the New York Times. And it was because of those articles that you probably know him best as the concussion guy. Because my guest, Alan Schwartz, is the man who went up against the NFL over their findings that concussions don't cause chronic traumatic encephalopathy, commonly known as CTE, in its players. Now, you're going to hear during this interview, you're going to hear him tell me that he really didn't take on the NFL. He took on their numbers. But the truth is, in my view, he absolutely took on the NFL and took on their attempts to do whatever they could to discredit him over that period of three and a half years. And Allen fought back using the most powerful weapons that he had at his disposal, his dedication and determination, and of course, his knowledge, his deep knowledge of math. Now, to me, that's a true warrior, and it's an inspiration for all of those who believe they're not strong enough to be a warrior, proving that all it takes is a man who stands up for what he believes, no matter who or what is staring at him across the ring. Now, Schwartz told me his father saw his love of numbers at a very early age and actually encouraged him along in his math career. Uh, and Schwartz told me about how he dreamed about becoming a math teacher and that he loved to encourage this love of numbers in others. But he didn't really want to spend an extra couple of years of schooling to get his master's degree in order to become a teacher. And it's not what he wanted to do. So I asked him how he went from wanting to be a math teacher to ending up being a sports journalist. I had worked on the school newspaper for a while. Uh, I enjoyed covering sports for the college newspaper. And so I thought, okay, uh, let's give sports writing a try. And I got a couple of very good jobs right out of college. And journalism became my career quite accidentally. I still want to be a math teacher. That's always what I've wanted to be. So even today, even after all the, the success in journalism and the books and everything, you still want to be a math teacher? Yeah, I tutor math for fun, high school math. I volunteered at a high school here in New York for four months. And yeah, yeah, if there's anyone wants a math teacher in uh, the Upper East Side of New York City, please let me know. Yeah, we'll, uh, we'll give him your, uh, your contact info. And, but you got into baseball, right? Because baseball is a stats lover's sport. I mean, that is just, that's where the stats geeks go that love sports, right? And so baseball became your primary, correct? Well, are, are you calling me a geek? I might be. I, I might actually. Yeah, I, I don't think it's might. I think you just did. No, that's okay. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, baseball has always been a place for tons of numbers. Uh, whether it's batting averages or ERAs or historical records or, you know, what's the, what's the probability of reaching second base if you steal with one out against this certain catcher. Uh, there's there's yeah. just always been a magic to baseball numbers. And that is what I'm sure attracted me to baseball. I got into it a little bit late when I was about 11 years old and uh, loved it, adored it. And 
ended up, of course, baseball cards had the stats on the back. Right. And now this is all very pre-Moneyball and all that. Uh, I was really a child of the Bill James generation, the uh, writer out of Kansas City who really transformed a lot of people's understanding and appreciation for baseball measurements, if you will. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, yeah, the baseball and math integrated in a way that that was not unique, certainly in me, but as I became a professional and started understanding the history of, of baseball statistical analysis, I wrote the book that was that is the history of baseball statistics. And it came out, it came out, or it was done before Moneyball. Uh, but it's, uh, it's an awful lot of fun because people were arguing over you know, on base percentage and during the Civil War, you know, it is not new. Really? It's something that's been been around for a really long time. Yeah, yeah. These arguments have been going on forever. Everyone thinks that it's it's a product of the modern age. Right. It is yeah, not. Sure. <laughs> no. Wow. So so baseball became your thing, but what you're more known for, you decided um, in your writing to go after two of the biggest institutions in the country: it was Big Pharma and the NFL. Well, I didn't go up against anybody, okay? Uh, I'm, very, I'm very sensitive to that. And while, of course, okay. I understand your point, okay? Mm-hmm. What I needed to do was, for example, in the National Football League mm-hmm. situation, we had, a, we had a situation where the league was claiming that head injuries in its players were no big deal. They had no long-term consequences. You could get a concussion during a game and go back in, no problem. That their science had answered all the questions in such a way that, you know, everything seems hunky-dory. And it was quite clear that that was not true. And even though I was a baseball writer exclusively, and this is now in 2006, mm-hmm. what I, when I looked at the data, again, with, with my math lens, I said, well, this is, this is crazy. This is not correct. These statements are not correct. Okay. So I went up against the statements. I did not go up against the institution. And so my job to me was to listen to what the NFL was saying, listen to how that resonated, not just within the NFL, but beyond to college programs to high school kids to right, kids. kids were involved too right it wasn't just the nfl exactly i mean the whole head injury thing at least as it appeared in the new york times and i did about 130 articles on it over four and a half years it was considered a public health issue it was not a going up against the nfl issue mm-hmm. now of course there was a great deal of conflict between what i was writing and what the nfl wanted written Right, which was my uh, but, point was that that was where the conflict came in. Sure, I mean they didn't they didn't like it. Yeah, of course, of course. But uh, you know, again, my focus was on the statements. It wasn't on the institution, okay. uh, because the institution, you know, there there's a lot going on there, and to to cast the NFL in itself as sort of evil mm-hmm. is foolish. Okay, what you want to do is say, look, you made this statement. It is not true. And let me show you why. 
And if you continue to make it, I will keep printing that you are somewhere in between mistaken and lying. <laughs> and so, uh, you, you know, it, it, that's how I, I looked at it. And I think that that is one of the reasons why it was so successful is I was never crusading for anything. I never was advocating for uh, for different rules. All I was doing is trying to prove that, hey, two plus two equals four. It doesn't equal five. No matter how powerful the NFL may be, no matter how accomplished, or at least in their own minds, accomplished as the uh, NFL doctors may be, uh, it doesn't matter because numbers are numbers. And probabilities are probabilities. And it, 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 I knew that we were going to be proven correct because, again, you know, two plus two equals four, no matter what the NFL thinks. Right. So what were the numbers that you were seeing? What actually sparked this in you when you said the probabilities and the numbers and all of that? So what did you see that made you say, hey, you know, what the NFL is saying isn't accurate? Well, back in 2006, and again, I was a full-time baseball guy. I was the host of Baseball Today on ESPN.com. And I mean, that's all I, quote unquote, all I was. Mm -hmm. But I got a, uh, somebody called me asking for advice on how to get a story published. And it was about how brain injuries in the NFL were not being handled properly and how the league's research was really uh, charitably faulty. Mm -hmm. And as I was looking at it, I said, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is really big. And what it was, was these guys who were dying with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, the brain damage that to that point had been found almost exclusively in boxers. It had not been found in football players until about 2002 and then 2005 when there had been two cases, but then all of a sudden the third case kind of landed in my lap. And so this was supposed to be a very rare thing. It was not supposed to be there in football players' heads, this disease that is caused only by repeated brain trauma. Right. And yet it was not only in these three players' brains, but only three players had ever been tested for it because it, you could only test for it after you die. And so we not only had something that was supposed to be very rare, but we had it something very rare three times out of three. Yeah. Now, these are not independent trials for all the stat heads listening right now. I understand that. This was not a random sample. However, when you're three out of three for something that's supposed to be very rare, maybe it's not as rare as we think. Sure, and at least that's and, the red flag that lets you go, I need to look at this further. Exactly, and it was what allowed me to go to the New York Times and say, these look like isolated anecdotes, okay? You know, you could say, and of course the league did, hey, it's only three guys, but it's three out of three for something that's supposed to be very rare. It's not just three guys. And so, like, if you show up in Las Vegas and the, and, and the roulette wheel, okay, or that wheel that's like one out of 100, mm -hmm. comes up 18, three times in a row, are yeah, you gonna, really going to think? What's going on? 
you're you're certainly going to question what's going yeah. on because you're far more willing to consider the, the the likelihood that a million to one shot didn't happen. Mm -hmm. That actually, it's not one out of a hundred. Now, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's one out of ten. Maybe it's one out of two. Yeah, I I don't I don't know exactly what it is, but it's overwhelmingly likely that it's not one out of a hundred. Yeah. So it means you need to look further and assess what are the, it's called Bayesian probability. And I did not invent this. This is not, you know, I'm not some genius. It's just when you're trained in math and probability and statistics, you know this stuff. And so what you do is you look at what happened and then you say, what were the chances of that happening mm -hmm. randomly or not? What have we learned from the fact that this has already occurred? Normally, of course, when you hear questions like what's the probability that you roll a seven in craps okay or you you get 17 on a roulette wheel or you draw your flush in texas hold'em which by the way i don't know if you know but double blind randomized trials have shown that the chances of that are zero when it is in fact schwartz holding the four the four hearts and needing the <laughs> uh so so it isn't always what you learned in school. Right. But the, the point is, is that so it's sort of a backwards probability and making you question whether what you've been told is mm -hmm. plausible. Yeah. I mean, look, I don't know one way or the other. Nobody right now knows the chances, the exact chances of if you find some random football player and he dies and you open his brain, what the chances are that he's going to have CTE or not. Mm -hmm. Okay. But I certainly can tell you, it ain't one out of a hundred. Right. Right. So what kept? So what was the NFL's response when this first happened? Right. There was a lot of denial, wasn't there? Or not denial, challenge of. Well, of me, right. <laughs> among other yeah. things. Sure. Um, you know, uh, it, it it was what is this? You know, math geek baseball guy. What could he possibly know about brain science and football? Which, by the way, was not the most unfair question in the world. It's it just the answer not. was enough. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was just enough to do what he was doing. Uh, and so, yeah, of course, I mean, you know, they publicly said that this is, you know, the New York Times is making it up and they're just, go they're just going for headlines and Schwartz just wants to win a Pulitzer and he doesn't know anything and and our doctors, and look at all these experts we have who disagree with him. And, it, you know, it was not a whole lot of fun. I sure. never wanted to be a controversial or investigative type guy. Um, but I found myself there, and I found myself there, uh, though, with a lot of, a lot of protection. Uh, the most obvious being the New York Times, mm -hmm. okay? and how they have your back no matter what uh, but also more subtly the numbers the numbers had my back i knew i wasn't wrong i, I mean the chances that i was wrong mathematically i'm not talking ego i'm talking mathematically we're like one over the number of atoms in the universe it was it was not, what what the nfl was claiming was the case was not within the realm of earthly possibility and so I didn't have to worry. I mean, this sounds so arrogant, and I, I don't mean it that way. I didn't have to worry about being incorrect. <laughs> I yeah. mean, 
It's just I didn't. You, you I had didn't have to worry that this about was it. the truth. This is what it is, and that's what I'm standing on. Exactly. I mean, you, you know, I mean, right now I am looking at a mirror. Now, I, I, maybe the mirror is not there. Okay, please don't. I'm not that narcissistic. It just happens to be what's in my line of sight, and maybe the mirror is not there. Maybe I'm hallucinating, but I'm almost certainly not. And so I'm going to go with the fact that the mirror is in fact there. And it was that clear as day for me. Uh, And it it wasn't arrogance as much. It was just belief and faith that two plus two was going to continue to equal four. Yeah. What what I want to know, Alan, is during all this, so now, you know, the NFL, big, big organization, and they're coming after you. They're trying to discredit you. What's keeping you going during this? What's the sense of duty there? Was it a sense of, hey, look, this is so obvious that these players are being injured all the way back through, you know, middle school, elementary school, Pop Warner, this has to come out. Is that what kept you moving through these 130 articles over those years? I don't know if it was so much this has to come out Mm -hmm. um, because that is something that is a very sort of journalistic type of mentality. I I have to warn the public. I I think it would be too self-congratulatory for me to say that that was the driving force. I think that it was somewhat more inward for me to prove that I knew what I was talking about mathematically. And, you know, the NFL had basically put its finger in my chest saying, you're wrong and you can't catch us. And I wanted to show that Actually, I could. That the belief that I had in numbers uh, was going to prevail. Now, I, I again, I don't want to make this seem like some personal, individual thing. Mm-hmm. But if you get down to sort of my my chromosomal, uh, you know, instincts or or just bent toward life. I think I said, no, as a matter of fact, the math geek's going to win this one. So, you know, I don't care how many 400 pound linemen you throw at me. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, you tell the bully, look, bring it on, baby, mm-hmm. because you're going to lose. Yeah. Now the other, the other thing was that I felt, and you know, you mentioned the word duty mm-hmm. okay? and I felt an immense loyalty to the to my editors to the institution of the new york times uh i had i had that point and never have since met a group of smarter nicer more trying to do the right thing people in life and they backed me at every turn and i wanted to repay that and make them proud because they really took a chance on me Mm -hmm. and and so that was another motivation was to show them that i could be a part of that team i I was always a little bit of an outsider i think 
for several reasons. And I, I just wanted to show, not that I was necessarily a part of the team, because there was always a part of me that, that felt a, a little not, but that, hey, thanks for inviting me in. Mm-hmm. Thanks, for, thanks for letting me be here. And giving you the shot, and, believing in you. Yeah, and and, and underst- you know they understood me in a way that I, I don't think anyone had before or since professionally. And it, it looking back, it was absolutely amazing mm. the faith that they had in me. And so I think you re- you reward faith with with duty or or loyalty depending on your definition of those terms. And um, it was a very strong feeling in me. I I wanted to show them, hey, thanks. You know, this meant a lot to me. Yeah, no, I can definitely appreciate that. And and, and the commitment to wanting to do right by them, for them taking that chance on you and standing behind you, being committed to you. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned earlier, I, I think the phrasing was, you know, this has to get out. And, and of course, I knew that that was important, okay? Mm-hmm. And that was, you know, ultimately my job. I, I knew that. I'm not stupid. Yeah. It's just that if we're talking about my just chromosomal or, or instinctual or, or um, I'm trying to think of the right word, but I can't come up with it. Um, instincts. I, I think it was more personal. I, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. And and I do think that oftentimes journalists' motivations are personal in a way that that there's nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all we're all human beings. And sure. You, you, something you has know, to strike and, that passion in you to keep going on something like this. Exactly, because I wasn't a trained journalist. Mm-hmm. I never took a journalism class. I never took a writing class. Uh, I was I was very self-taught, and that doesn't make me better or worse. It just meant I was different, and I had a, a I arrived at hardcore journalism so accidentally, and frankly, with no particular desire to do it, mm-hmm. that I think I needed to sort of calibrate myself to to perform the duties that I had been given. I don't think that I could have executed what I did by just deciding I was a hardcore journalist and that's that. That wouldn't have worked. I couldn't metabolize that. Mm-hmm. I needed to I needed to figure out okay, how am I going to do this in a way that that I can pull off and and the reason i think that i i'm right about all this is that in 2011 after about 400 uh, after about four and a half years i left the sports department very willingly because i was mm-hmm. totally burned out on the story and ended up becoming m- more of an of a hardcore journalist if you will uh-huh. uh, covering a lot of a lot of pretty ugly stuff and I hated it. I hated every minute of it. Really? Why, why did I, you I hate it so much? Because it's, it's just, there's so much anger. And there's so many crazy idiots out there who flood your inbox with vitriol. 
And, you know, I was coming of age as a hardcore journalist in, you know, 2012, 2013, 2014, as Twitter and social media were becoming something you had to do if you were going to do the job. You mm -hmm. needed to engage with your readers and you needed to communicate with them and, and create a, a community. And frankly, I disliked too many of them <laughs> to want to do it. Yeah. You know, the, the night, see, the problem was, is of course, I got far more nice comments than I got negative comments. I mean, I, I'm not going to deny that. But the negative ones hurt far more than the nice ones felt good. And people were so mean and so stupid and mm -hmm. so unwilling to to you know acknowledge that the sky is blue mm -hmm. you know no matter i mean i'm sorry if you'd rather it not be and i'm sorry if you've just sort of created your own little world in which you don't see it as blue but it doesn't change the fact that it's blue and don't blame me yeah and yeah. and it just got so upsetting and so frustrating and and I, I just, I just didn't, honestly, I didn't want to deal with the, the public. It sounds terrible. Yeah. Um, but the public was really obnoxious <laughs> and I didn't want to, I didn't want to live like that. I didn't want to have to swim in that pool anymore. Yeah. So I think that's why I can say confidently that I couldn't have done the NFL work with a conventional journalist's mind, whatever conventional journalist means. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I, I think with more of the, the typical, if you will, yeah. um, journalist's mindset. Sure. Well, I want to get into one thing uh, before we move off the NFL. You know, the, the, the big thing with the NFL is the integrity of the shield, right? We've heard that. And, you know, you basically your argument ended up better than theirs because now, you know, the, obviously the concussion protocols, the rules changes, all this stuff about helmets and everything. So what's your feeling on that after all that time, after them telling you, Hey, look, this, this math geek doesn't know anything about what's going on in the NFL. Our doctors are smarter than he is. And they say, this isn't the case, but then ultimately when they're, you know, being in integrity, they have to admit that you're right. And these rule changes take place and all this happens. How does that feel for you? Well, I'll tell you a story. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you a story that, 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 taking a quick step back, there was a screenplay written about me, mostly, but, but and somebody else, but me and sort of the, the Alan Brockovich of this story, <laughs> where, you know, they profiled, you know, the math geek who, who took on the NFL. Okay, fine. Right. And the reason I'm mentioning that is that I told this story to the screenwriter and he literally did not believe me. He believed to be a hundred percent true. But when I told him this story, he refused to depict it because he didn't believe me. No kidding. Before I start, will you believe me? At, of course I'll believe you, Alan, because the math proves it, right? <laughs> no, <laughs> not in this case. <laughs> but uh, okay, uh, uh, dear listener, are you going to believe me? All I'll right, good. Speak, I'll speak for the listeners. Yeah, they're going to believe you. Okay, okay. So it's the end of two thousand. No, beginning of two thousand ten. 
or 11. 11. And I'm, no. Okay, sorry, folks. I don't remember. But uh, probably 2010. And this, all this stuff has been swirling around and we had the congressional hearings and we, you know, a lot of the rule changes and I mean, just three and a half years of fighting about this stuff with the league, with doctors, with other people. And then finally the dam had broken and these changes had happened. And it was clear that, that I had, I'm not going to say one, but I had been proven correct. Mm -hmm. And making a longer story short, I'm on the phone with the league, with the league spokesman, writing, doing something. And he says something to the effect of, it's clear that concussions can lead to long-term consequences. And I was like- Actually admits this right out to you on the phone. Well, yeah. I mean, again, it was sort of admitting the sky was blue, but nonetheless, it was, and and I, I was like, Hmm, okay. And now of course I don't want to overreact. I don't want to be like, Oh my God, you just said, you know, flap (laughs) your wings. You want to be like, Hmm, okay. And I said, you you know, that's the first time that anybody associated with the league has, has said that. Yeah. And the guy, you know, was kind of annoyed and he said, well, we're, we're all on the same page. You know, we're on the same page. We all have the same goals here. That's all I'm going to say. And, you know, basically saying, yeah, I know I said it and leave it at that. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, whoa, okay, this is interesting. <laughs> so I hang up the phone. I'm in California. I'm in a hotel room uh, sitting at the desk. I'm in the hotel room. And I hang up, the, I, I, you know, click off my cell phone. What do I do at that moment? You tell me. Uh, called room service, ordered some champagne. Okay. Give me another possibility. <laughs> you call the New York Times and tell them you've been vindicated. You're writing a story that the NFL just admitted that they side, you know, they, they believe your version of the facts okay that is not what i did (laughs) i took the phone and i threw it as hard as i possibly could into the pillow on the bed across Uh the room into the pillow on the bed and said quite loudly god damn it very loud now why would i do um, because you weren't recording him. No. <laughs> Although I got to tell you, that's a darn good answer. Yeah, because <laughs> that's what I was thinking. Was you know I got him on the record here. Um, why, well, goddamn it? Because it was over. Because they had wasted my uh-huh. time. There you go. Mm-hmm. Because they had put me through all of that, put everybody through all of that. And, and I knew I was right from the moment we started. And it took us three and a half years to do this? Really? I was so angry. I mean, I had gotten a career out of it. Mm-hmm. I had great health insurance. You know, I was at a wonderfully prestigious 
you know, I was at the top of the mountain journal, you know, in terms of my field and I didn't care. I was like, I cannot believe what I had to do, what they made me do. For as long as they made you do it. For as long as they made me, the stress that I was under, the stress my family was under, just, it was just a big waste of time. Mm. And that's what the screenwriter refused <laughs> to put in the film. Wow. Even though that's, that's absolute, that's 100% what happened. You know, and, 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 and yeah, I was going to say, looking at it, Alan, I, I could say, you know, I absolutely believe that that's what you did. Because for me, you know, you were standing on your truth. You were standing on the numbers and the facts that you had. And to argue for that long against an institution that just kept saying no, 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 to finally have them just, it almost seems like offhandedly as a side note, yeah, by the way, we're all on the same page. After yeah. all of that, just seems almost anticlimactic, number one. And number two, I agree with you. It's like, why couldn't we have done this, you know, three years ago? How much time and money and effort and brain cells and everything has been wasted, at least so far, on this just preposterous concept that everybody yeah. knows is so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and bringing it back to the NFL, it, it almost, you know, my feeling around it is, could they have looked at the numbers way back when you first presented them, what were they standing on? What was there? And I know you can't probably answer this. If you could, that'd be wonderful. But what's, it almost feels like, all right, shit, we were wrong. And now we've got to protect our wrongness and not look wrong. Well, I think it was, it was partly that, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, I think it was partly just sheer arrogance. Like they didn't even get that far in the thought process. Just like, we're obviously right. And mm -hmm. That's that, okay? Mm -hmm. I think they like like th there was a range of of mentalities toward it, um, down to and including not really paying attention to what these doctors were saying. Uh, you know, as far as Roger Goodell goes, okay, the commissioner of the league, mm -hmm. um, I I have not been as um, I don't want to say critical, but. I think that he behaved differently in all of this than a lot of other people who should have known better. Right? Tell me what you mean that. Tell me what you mean by that. Well, I, you know, the doctors knew that what they had done was wrong. Okay. Or they at least should have known. They, they, I'm sorry. I don't think arrogance is that blind. Mm -hmm. I think that they knew that they had been covering up things that they shouldn't have been covering up in terms of the science that they had been conducting. Uh, I mean, I've since, I've since, I, many years later, I, I got a hold of sort of the inner workings of their so-called scientific studies, and it was just disgusting, wow. the garbage that they pulled. Okay. And why were they doing that? Was it because they were on the payroll, or? Uh, I can't say. Yeah, I don't know why. Right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I don't I don't ever speak for them. But I think that from what I've seen, first of all, Roger Goodell rose. I, I feel like there are some. Well, let me let me let me let me start here. 
Goodell became commissioner in the summer, maybe August, of 2016. He was not the most prepared for the position. And this fell in his lap in, what, five months later? Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that, that just he, he got blindsided by this. Now, if you're running an organization like that, you should darn well get up to speed pretty quickly. However, I think that in some ways, and I am not getting political, however, um, I think that, that Roger Goodell and George Bush, Bush 43, W, mm-hmm. share some characteristics. They, bo- they both are, are pretty good guys. I mean, you talk to people around the Texas Rangers when George Bush owned that team. They loved him. He was the nicest guy down to earth would say hi to the grounds crew and talk baseball and put his feet up in Bobby Valentine's office. I mean, he was just a great guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, Roger Goodell is, I don't think, a bad guy. I don't think Roger Goodell's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, but I think they both of these men rose in their positions, partly, at least partly, if not a lot, because of their fathers, mm-hmm. obviously Bush, but also Goodell's father was a senator, very okay. powerful person in New York. Uh, he was actually the guy who succeeded Bobby Kennedy when he was killed in 1968. Um, and so they rose and rose in organizations well beyond where they probably should. And then they found themselves at the top pretty unprepared. Yeah. And frankly, um, intellectually not capable of, of handling all that was thrown at them. And so I, I do feel like Roger got a little blindsided. Now, he sh- like I said, he should have gotten up to speed faster, but he was being told a lot of very bad information by people who should have darned well known better. Mm. And, he had uh, trusted in some people or he had people around him who were not giving him quality advice, we'll say. Correct. And they were not pursuing better advice mm-hmm. um, and or better information. And now, of course, they performed basically a cover up. I'm not I'm not absolving them of that. Right. But I do think it's more nuanced than them just being evil and trying to hide the fact that, you know, their cigarettes cause cancer. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were elements of that. But I, I do think it was far more nuanced. I think that some of it was those, they, they just didn't want to believe that this was really happening. Yeah, because it, the, yeah, I can feel that because the admission that this is really happening had dire consequences for the league and for the game itself. Well, you can say that. And you, you it also, I said back then, and I think that I'm right, is that I, I don't think it's really been that big of a deal. For the league in terms of its profitability, mm-hmm. in terms of its popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the NFL isn't going anywhere. The NFL is you know, making a bazillion dollars. They're growing yeah. at something like 7% a year. Yeah. Uh, they're about to get an unprecedented windfall from uh, legalized gambling revenue. Mm-hmm. And they have weathered this storm very, very well. Now, 
I will say, and I've been told this, so I, I'm going to, I just think it sounds like, okay, maybe it's true. The League has lost only one public relations war in its entire history. They survived strikes, they survived mm -hmm. steroids, they survived lockouts, they've survived the domestic violence stuff. People make a big deal out of the fact that fewer kids are playing football today. Mm -hmm. And there, there are, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it might be down about 10, maybe, maybe low teens percent since 2007 when all this stuff started. Right. And people make a big deal out of that, and I, I understand why. But first of all, there are still three million kids playing football. Mm -hmm. uh, and second of all, people forget that the NFL is a zero-sum game in the sense that somebody is going to win the Super Bowl. Mm -hmm. Somebody is going to be a hero. I mean, the way it's set up is to create and cultivate these moments it's impossible for someone to not win the super bowl correct and people are going to break records because records are a byproduct not just of talent but of the rules under which you play mm -hmm. and so you know it's hard for me to believe that dalvin cook is a better running back than jim brown but he's going to have more yards in a season than jim brown because of the 16 games and because you know whatever mm -hmm. these things are all very controllable from the top and so, yeah, maybe, you know, like the next Tom Brady, okay? Tom Brady was a, an excellent high school pitcher outside of San Francisco, Sarah High School, mm -hmm. and would have been a first-round pick. In fact, was like a fifth-round pick of the Expo or something like that, but would have been a first-round pick mm -hmm. had he not been so committed to Michigan. Now, maybe the next Tom Brady doesn't put on a helmet because his parents don't let him. Right. And he becomes a baseball pitcher. So, mm -hmm. You know what? No one will ever would ever know. Right. Because that means somebody else would have won those six or seven, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Super Bowls. You know, Peyton Manning would have won four. We would have been extolling. Peyton Manning is definitely the greatest ever. Right. And, and so I think people, you know, completely overestimate the cost of fewer kids playing the sport. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't think it's going to matter. No, and, and I think part of it too is beyond that as well is now people are more informed about what the dangers are, right? So they're going into it making that decision themselves. So if they do decide to continue to play football, it's with informed decision not well but that would be you know for theoretically college and, and, and mm -hmm. professionals i think that also one of the things that i i tried to focus on is that a 12 year old back in 2007 and frankly even now does mm -hmm. not have informed consent okay they don't really know what they're getting into and that's right. why parents make decisions for them mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes make decisions that they don't like uh but you know, that's why we tried to treat this as a public health story. Mm -hmm. is we, you know, grown in the NFL, you have grown men making grown men's decisions. And now they should have had better information before 2007 to 2010 when we were doing all of this. They should have. And we made sure to get 
the proper information out there. But right now, they have the information, and they're choosing to play, and that's fine. They're professional stuntmen. They right. take risks for our entertainment. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. Listen, there's I a lot of professions I, where people take risks for money. Absolutely. Right? I mean, there are dangerous professions in, in every category. Absolutely. I mean, you, you want your employer to be candid about what those risks are, Correct. or at least not obfuscatory. Correct. I, I think that, you know, if an NFL player wants to run over the middle and try to catch a pass, God bless him. Hey, I'm a Jets season ticket holder. I love, I love <laughs> pro football. Sure. I'm not a big fan of youth football because I'm concerned that the kids don't really understand. Mm -hmm. And do not understand how important it is to recognize if you're dizzy to get off the field because you otherwise might die. Right. Like these are things that I think kids are not necessarily prepared for. But if you're a 26 year old player in the NFL and you don't know what you're getting into, then you're an idiot. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's important, Alan, to note that, you know, you're, you're not saying football is bad. Right. I mean, no. that, and I think that's what, you know, a lot of misconception too, is that, Oh, here's this guy. He's trying to change the rules and tell us football is dangerous and it's bad. And that, that's not really the case. You're just saying, here are the facts. Here's what's going on. Be informed, make good decisions based on these facts. And, and not even good decisions. Like I don't even care what you do. Right. I couldn't care less. None of my business. If you let your kid play football or not, mm -hmm. I mean, it really isn't. I, I'm not trying to tell you what to do. I'm just basically saying that what you've been told is incorrect yeah, and completely misleading and up to and including fraudulent. And so I'd like to give you better information. But after that, you know, it's none of my business. It really isn't. When you were writing these articles and you talked about, um, you know, the NFL and then their, I don't want to say smear campaign, but let's just say you were seen in a negative light on, on their part. And the challenges that you faced, and you said it was three and a half years of going through all of this with them. You know, would you, well, I'm going to ask you one, would you do it again, given all of that? And number two, what, did, what would you say to other men who are, you know, facing challenges like this about continuing and keeping up that fight? Well, first of all, would I, would I do it again? Mm -hmm. um, I, it's a hard, I've never been asked that. I've been asked a lot of questions. I got to tell you, I've never been asked that. <laughs> I think it, it, I think it would take, it would require a lot of thought and a lot of rationalization to say no. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I, I think that would be pretty disingenuous. I, you know, wrote, I, I gained, I had a lot of respect from a lot of people who I respect mm -hmm. and that felt great. Uh, I know I'm remembered fondly. Uh, by both the people I worked with and by a lot of the readers uh, who felt as if we did a good job. And that's very satisfying. I, I wouldn't say I wouldn't do it again. I, things worked out great. They were very unpleasant in a lot of ways. Um, and there was definitely a cost. I mean, I'm not a baseball writer anymore. It's all I ever want. You know, if I wasn't going to be a math teacher, okay, um, I you know, I was a baseball guy. I was in the business, enjoyed it. Was nothing wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm not doing that anymore. I miss it terribly. Um, and you're I not doing it anymore because what, what was the cost? Why, why are you not doing it anymore? Uh, 
I don't like putting myself out there. And got it. Um, okay. I don't like scrutinized by the public and uh, all the, you know, having the likes. And I can't do it. I can't do social media. Mm-hmm. And if you can't do social media, then you can't really be a, any sort of a public person. And right. I don't want to be a public person to the extent that I was. You know, right. I, right, 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 right. I don't want to overstate it, but I, I, I was. I, I was a pretty public person for a while. And I didn't like it, and I really don't like it now. And that makes it very difficult to be a writer anymore. Mm-hmm. And I do feel like that was kind of taken from me. Uh, and I have to figure out, you know, what I'm going to be doing next. Now, I, I, I run my own consulting company. I mean, I'm perfectly successful and that's mm-hmm. fine. But in terms of identity, in terms of my own self-image, um, that is not there anymore. And that's very difficult. Now, in terms of advice for other people, I'm not sure how much I can really do that. I am so self-centered. <laughs> I, uh, that's a joke. But I, I mean, I, I, I experienced it within my own walls. I'm not sure I could pretend to be in anybody else's walls. I think that. Well, how, did you handle the would, challenge? how did you handle the challenges that you were faced when, when, when this was all coming up and, you know, you were getting slammed on social media and the, from the NFL and everything else. Um, and knowing that, you know, you're not going to do that anymore as a baseball writer, which is what you loved. How did you face that challenge? I think I forgot that I had a choice on, on, on purpose. I think you just do it. You just shut up and you do it. And when you feel as loyal as I did to the people I worked with and worked for, mm-hmm. um, you just kick ass. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously you don't want your family to be broke. I mean, I, I, it's not like my wife threatened to divorce me or we fought. It, it wasn't that bad. It, it wasn't movie worthy. Mm-hmm. But all I mean is that the cost to me was very, was sort of latent. It, it, it took a very long time for it mm-hmm. to manifest itself. And so, uh, it, you know, in terms of advice for other people, I, all I can say is at least the way that I'm wired is when I knew I had the numbers, um, I knew that I was going to win. Mm-hmm. If, to whatever extent it was a competition, I knew that I was going to win. So was because that belief, that firmness in the belief of what you were standing on, the truth, um, the integrity that you had, all of that was what you were standing on, and that's what got you through. Yeah, and, and because numbers, you know, what numbers lack in nuance, they more than make up for in clarity. Mm. And I knew that what I was dealing with was something that was irrefutable, at least as it, you know, logically. Now it's very difficult to fight the logic with logic, and it took me three and a half years. But I knew that ultimately it was going to work out. So, in terms of advice for other people, obviously, not that many people are, you know, math heads the way I am. But I would certainly encourage you, if you feel as if you're you're being uh, threatened 
the threatened not physically but but uh, second guessed or mm-hmm. or attacked um, right, uh, yeah. for what you believe is true and you're pretty darn sure is true first of all make sure you're not wrong you know have someone check your check your map um but but if you know you're right and the other person is wrong uh then don't let them get away with it mm-hmm. and uh now of course there are a lot of people who think that things are not the way they are. Again, there's a fine line between conviction and error. Mm-hmm. But I think that you know you you need if you if you can stomach it, um, if you can just say, look, I know I'm right, and I I just need to figure out how to pick the lock. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, picking that lock could take three and a half years. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, which is that which is an amazing commitment to that belief. Right? Well, I mean that but the thing is is that you have to remember that just because I had the belief doesn't really matter. Is the belief was shared by and um cultivated by the New York Times. Mm-hmm. And they were incredibly supportive. They spent a lot of money on that story. You know, the New York Times doesn't make money. They, they spend it on things like this for the public good. And people who are giving them a hard time these days, I want to punch them in the face. Um, they ain't perfect. I'm not saying that. Yeah. But anyone who doubts their intentions, okay, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to have to answer to me. And so the, the conviction that I had could not possibly have had one-tenth of the effect that it did without the support and backing of the New York Times and the people who I worked for. Yeah. Yeah, and them have, yeah, I can, I can feel that in them having your back and knowing that you had that support is, is one of the key things that allowed you to continue forward during all of this. Yeah, they had my back. Mm-hmm. And I mean, one of the things to realize is it's not like, you know, the NFL was going to kneecap me or, mm-hmm. you know, rub me out, <laughs> uh, <laughs> anything like that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I don't want to make it seem like that. But when you're as sensitive to criticism as I am, mm-hmm. uh, and when the league is saying all these bad things about you publicly, uh, it, it hurts. Mm-hmm. It does. I, 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 you know, I try to reconcile it. I try to, you know, yo, don't, don't worry about it. Well, that's easy for you to say. Right. Uh, you know, I didn't want this. I wasn't looking for a fight. I, I didn't want that. Yeah. I, I just, you know, it's like, hey, look, fellas, you know, this one out of a hundred <laughs> thing happened three times in a row. Don't tell yeah. me that the that it's random. Come I'm just on, showing you the fellas. math, and I didn't want to pick a fight, but I want showing you the math, and then they got a fight. Yeah, and they just refused to to, like I said, admit that no, two plus two actually does equal four. We we. We, we thought it equaled five. We cooked our books to make it look like five. Mm-hmm. We got it published in a journal, you know, that happened to be edited by one of our medical consultants. She was shot. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, but no, it doesn't equal five. And it's not my fault that it doesn't. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry. Right. I, yeah. I didn't make up the math or make up math itself 
I'm just showing you what the math says. Exactly. Yeah. You know, go, go exhume Pythagoras. I don't care. It's not my fault. <laughs> my last question is, with all of this, um, what do you want your legacy to be? Well, I know what my epitaph is going to say. Mm -hmm. My tombstone will say, here lies Alan Schwartz, July 3rd, 1968 to whenever. And then it will have three words, the concussion guy. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah. I know that that's what it's going to say, no matter what I do. I could cure cancer. It doesn't matter. I would still be the concussion guy. Concussion guy. Um, I, I think I'd like to be somebody, to be known as somebody who raised standards mm -hmm. at a time when they're being lowered constantly, that he raised standards mm -hmm. and did so and, and, and did it by honoring his roots in math. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I was able to take what his teachers taught him and do something that was pretty cool and helped a lot of people, made a difference. I think that I would like to be known as somebody who was, in fact, a math teacher professionally, but just taught at a different blackboard. And I agree with Schwartz. He has taught us a lot, especially how to step into your warrior when needed, to put aside fear and to stand on your truth regardless of the consequences. And to me, that's the most important lesson here. And, and how you can do this no matter what you think or believe that you can do. Now, if we look at the Sacred Seven core values, you know, courage, honesty, integrity, commitment, duty, honor, and love, you can see where during Schwartz's battle, the whole time with the NFL, he was embodying all of these. Right? He had the courage to speak up and to stand up to this organization. He had the honesty and integrity to stand on his truth and to speak that truth no matter who he was speaking it to or how they tried to twist it. He had a commitment. His commitment was to getting the truth out there. Um, even though it took a period of several years, he stayed committed to making sure this truth came out. And then, of course, the duty he felt to the men who had taught him his love of numbers as well as his duty to the men and children who are being impacted by this and who would be impacted had this not come out. And also the honor and the love that he had for these men and for the people who stood by supporting him this whole time. And of course, the love for the numbers that allowed him to see this truth. And that, guys, is what makes the Sacred Seven so powerful. It doesn't matter who you are. I don't care about race, creed, religion, socioeconomic status, size, strength, any of that. Doesn't matter. Nothing except being a man willing and able to embody these kind of values because that's what enables any of us to be a warrior when necessary and when we need to step up and get stuff done. So now I want to know what you got out of Alan Schwartz's story. Would you let me know? Social media links are on the website, wlkhpodcast.com. Just head over there. Leave me a comment. Send me a DM. Let me know what you're getting out of this. And also, you can join the Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes group on Facebook where we discuss a lot of these things. Also, remember to rate us, leave a review and comment. Most importantly, as I always say, 
Make sure to share this show with men you know will get value from it. All right? So please pass it on. And I want to thank Alan Schwartz today for joining me, for being real and honest, and telling us all the story of his journey to modern manhood and to becoming a warrior, tapping into his warrior. And I want to thank you for listening to Eric Rogel Talks with Warriors, Lovers, Kings, and Heroes today. I'm Eric Rogel. I'm honored to be with you, to be your brother by your side on your hero's journey. I'll see you guys next week. Hi, this is comedian and writer, and let's be honest, I do a lot of things. This is Dean Archipotis, the host of Whiskey Business, the podcast not so much about whiskey as it is one with whiskey. Yes, we drink and talk about whiskey, but we do so much more with so many interesting people. For example, we talk to comedians like Greg Warren. You know, I don't want to brag, but let's just say I can walk into a Red Lobster and get whatever. You know, I think the pause right there is probably more important than the word. Amazing athletes like boxing champion Buster Douglas. When a fighter's down and he's looking for his mouthpiece instead of trying to get up. That's when I knew it was over. Yeah, Yeah. right? And, yes, Bigfoot chasers. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, does he really eat beef jerky? (laughs) The Bigfoot thing is people have seen these, and and I've seen a lot of compelling evidence about it. It's Whiskey Business with Dino Tripodis. Join us for what we call a good conversation with a good pour. You really can't ask for much more than that, can you, people? Check us out at whiskeybusinesspod.com, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.